Before I get started, I need to just make a quick comment. About 20 years ago, in this building, I met a young lady from North Little Rock, Arkansas. And when she walked through the door, she said, hello. It was the longest hello of my life. And she had me at hello. I said, this woman comes from a foreign and distant land. I need to meet her and figure out where she's from. And so, by God's grace, two years later, on this platform, we both said, I do, for better or worse. In, in God's kindness, in God's kindness, I never thought I'd find a wife in all places called Las Vegas. I was ready to move on. But the Lord was kind and gracious to me. I married way up. I married out of my league. But the only thing I wanted all my life was not just any woman and any wife. I wanted a Christian wife. I wanted somebody to love Jesus more than they love me. And I knew if I could find a woman who loved Jesus more than they loved me, then God would work it out. And so today we celebrate 18 years of marriage. We got married up here. Yeah. Praise the Lord. We have our five children here, and the Lord gave us a family that could never be replaced, which is you. We're grateful to God for you, and grateful to God that you're here. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us. And the last thing that we need is to hear the word of a man. We need to hear the word of God. I pray that you would help us by your spirit to give us eyes to see the truth of your word in these holy pages of scripture. So be with us now. Convict us where we need to be convict us and build us up, Lord, in the truth of your word. In Christ we pray. Amen. There was a very famous doctor by the name of Dr. Albert Schweitzer. He died in September of 1965. He was a very popular gentleman, but before he died, he served in Africa. He served in Lamborghini, Gabon, Africa, which is the western part of the continent of Africa. But he was known for his medical treatment uh, on lepers. There was a leper colony, and he tried different types of medical treatments, and he started to help the people. He also resolved another problem, which was known as the African sleeping sickness. And so, in 1952, Dr. Schweitzer won the Nobel Peace Prize. They gave him money, and with that money, he started a leprosarium in this Lamborghini Gabon region. If you don't know where Gabon is, it's between Cameroon and Congo on the western coast. So he started a leprosarium, basically a place to treat lepers. And Dr. Schweitzer after serving in Africa for many, many years, decided to go home. He decided to go back to Europe. And he was 80 years old at this time. And there was a little gathering, and one of the reporters was confused and wanted to know why Dr. Schweitzer, the famous Dr. Schweitzer, came to Europe. But more than that, he wanted to know why did he stay in Africa for so many years because Europe was known as a place of safety and security and comfort. Why would he give up all of this to go serve in Africa for many, many years? And the humble doctor thought about the question and he said this, you see, 
I had to do something for Christ. He felt compelled that he had to do something for Christ. He didn't want to waste his life. He couldn't sleep at night just wasting his gifts and talents that the Lord had given him. And as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we need to do something as well for our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to know Jesus, and that's why we're here. But also, don't we want to make him known wherever we go, whether it's in the local valley, local community, local neighborhood, or halfway across the world? We want people to know Jesus. Why? Because the Savior that we serve is not dead, but he is alive. We serve a great Savior, a kind Savior, a loving Savior, a gracious Savior. He is the one and only Savior. And the main point that I want to get across today is in your bulletin, Jesus the Christ is the greater baptizer. Jesus the Christ is the greater baptizer. We're in Luke chapter 3, and if you remember at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, he challenges the crowd. And he tells them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's challenging them on what is their true allegiance, what is their true identity. He's telling them, don't rely on your lineage. Don't rely on your race. Don't rely on your ethnicity. Don't rely on your family. Because if God wants to, God can raise up children from these stones for Abraham if God wants to. So don't rely on any of those things. And John is addressing three audiences in this section or this chapter. The first is the general crowd, and then he addresses tax collectors, and then he addresses soldiers. In chapter 3, verse 10, the crowds ask John the Baptist, after being challenged of, being, of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, the crowd say, well, what shall we do? And John replies, whoever has two tunics is to give one to the one who has none. And if you have food, do the same. Do likewise. He's saying give if you have been blessed by God to those who don't have much. And then in verse 12, the tax collectors ask him the, basically the same question. What shall we do, teacher? And John replies, collect no more than what you are required or authorized to do because tax collectors would collect more so that they would pocket the difference and have a nice, comfortable lifestyle. And John the Baptist says, no, don't collect any more than you're authorized by the Roman government. In verse 14, the soldiers ask the same question, and what shall we do? And John replies, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. To be a soldier or a policeman of that time, in that culture, you would force people to do your bidding. How? You would make a lie or create a lie. You would fabricate some story against them and put them in jail. And so John the Baptist says, no more lying. No more extorting. No more robbing the people and using your force for evil. Use your authority for good. So John is showing the crowds these three crowds, the general crowds, the tax collectors, the soldiers, practically what it means to have repentance, biblical repentance, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you remember in this text, John the Baptist is not saying, all of you are saved, all of you are Christians. He's not saying that. 
And he's not saying all of you are condemned and going to hell. He's not saying that either. But he's trying to challenge them on what is your true allegiance and what do you think about Jesus? Then we get to verse 15 in our text, Luke chapter 3, verse 15. And after all these discussions, the crowds, they start to put two and two together because now there's this hope, this anticipation of hope that's rising within the people. And they're wondering if John the Baptist is the promised Old Testament Messiah or the New Testament Christ. Is he the one we've been waiting for all this time? Our people have been waiting centuries for the Messiah, for the Christ, the anointed one, the one that God would send to, to deliver his own people. So the people are inwardly thinking about, is John the Baptist the Messiah or the Christ? So the people knew that something special was happening. They knew that the Messiah would come. They knew that the Christ would come, but they did not know the name, or the first name, I should say, of the Christ. They did not know his name would be Jesus. They knew that the Christ would come, but they didn't know that it was Jesus, the Christ. Then in our text for today, verses 16 through 20, we're going to see three important points that you'll see in your bulletin. Number one, Jesus is mightier. Jesus is mightier, that's verse 16. Point number two, Jesus will bring judgment. Verse 17. And point number three, consequences of spirit-filled preaching. That's verses 18 to 20. So John, or I should say, in Luke 3, verse 16, we see the very first point. Jesus is mightier. Luke 3, 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you notice, the people or the crowds never vocalize, they never verbalize the thoughts in their heart. John didn't hear them say, are you talking about me, thinking that I'm the Christ, the Messiah? They didn't verbalize this communication. Yet John knows exactly what they're thinking in their hearts. And how is this possible? for a prophet, John the Baptist, to know the thoughts of the people? Well, I believe the answer is in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, Luke 1, 15. And this is what it says. For he will be great before the Lord. Talking about John the Baptist. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. But this is what he's going to do. Here's his role, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit since the womb. His role is is to prepare the people for someone greater who is coming right behind him. He knows the thoughts of their hearts, and John makes it very clear that I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. There's no way to confuse this. He's saying, I am not the Christ. 
John knows his role and responsibility. He, he knows exactly who he is. He, ex- he knows exactly his role and his responsibility. And he's saying, there is one who is coming after me who is greater, who's mightier, who has all authority. This person, this great person, is so mighty that John believes that he's unworthy. He's inadequate. He's unqualified to untie this person's sandals. See, back in those days, they didn't wear Crocs. I know that's a shock to some of us. They would wear very primitive leather shoes called sandals. And you would tie these sandals with a leather strap. But in rabbinic schools, a teacher would teach, but the student who was under the teacher would not pay the teacher. But he would pay the teacher in another way, by being the teacher's servant or slave. That's how he was taught. And so this student who acted as a servant would do many tasks for the teacher. But one thing he would not do as a student is untie the sandals of the teacher or anyone. Why? Because you left that role to someone who is of the lowest position within the totem pole or within the culture or within the family. You would leave that role and job for the lowest of the low. So what is John the Baptist saying? He's saying, I see Jesus. Jesus is great. Here's a servant who is supposed to untie the leather sandals. But then here is me, way down here. What is John the Baptist doing? John the Baptist sees himself clearly. Why? Because he sees Jesus clearly. He says, I can't compare myself to Jesus. I'm so unqualified, I can't even untie his leather sandals or unstrap his sandals. John sees himself as a forerunner, preparing the way for the one after him, which is Jesus. John the Baptist sees himself as a prophet, but he's pointing people to the greater prophet. So John sees Jesus as someone greater than himself. I wonder if we elevate ourselves way too much in our Christian day-to-day living. That on Sundays we walk in and we're very humble. And we say, Lord bless you, dear brother. Lord bless you, dear sister. I'm praying for you. But as soon as we walk out these doors, we live our lives in very arrogant prideful ways it may not be what we actually say it may be what we don't say it may not be what we do it may be what we don't do pride shows up in different ways in our lives so i wonder if we elevate our ways or ourselves way too much and when we do it's because we don't see jesus clearly in those moments we think that we're the king of kings and the lord of lords i want to encourage us keep your eyes on jesus keep your eyes on jesus not only is jesus greater in person but jesus is also greater in terms of ministry john says i baptize you with water meaning water baptism something that's external not internal 
See, water baptism is a picture or a sign of someone being religiously or spiritually cleansed from contaminants or, in this case, sin. It's a picture or symbol of spiritual cleansing. And John the Baptist is saying, I baptize you with water. That's external. But someone greater is coming after me. I'm preparing you for the greater one. And this greater one is the greater baptizer. This person will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, if you know anything about this verse, this is where the debate begins with scholars. In scholarly circles, when they read verse 16, the debate is this. Is there two baptisms or is there one baptism? One baptism, the one baptism position basically says that verse 16 only applies to believers. And what that means is that salvation and sanctification apply to the believer. That's their position. Because it's a cleansing, purifying work of the Holy Spirit to the individual believer in the area of salvation and sanctification. Hopefully that makes sense. But the two-baptism position refers to something different. The two-baptism position says that salvation is received uh, when believers... Let me, let me back up. I want to make sure I quote this right. Believers receive the Holy Spirit. So in the two-baptism position, salvation is when Jesus came, gives the Holy Spirit, and so the believers receive the Holy Spirit, and that's what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. But the part where it refers to fire refers to something completely different. It's the baptism of fire refers to judgment that Jesus will bring when he comes a second time, his second coming. So therefore, the audience in the second or the two baptism position is salvation is for believers, fire is judgment, and that's for non-believers. That's the two baptism position. And I understand I could be wrong, what I'm about to say. But I, I don't think I'm wrong. If I am wrong, feel free to bring your Bible to me and explain your position, but I take the two-baptism position. Why? Because of context. You know, if you've ever been in real estate or you're a business owner, they always say location, location, location. But if you're a Bible student, which we all are, it's context, context, context. So I'm advocating and arguing this morning for the two-baptism position. And let me walk us through this so that it makes sense, what I'm about to say. If you look at verse 9, look at verse 9. It says, the axe is laid to the root. That doesn't sound like fun. Okay? There is, there is something there that is not fruitful. There is something there that is not producing what it's supposed to produce. And because it's not producing what it's supposed to produce, now there's an axe that's laid to the root. In other words, there is a cutting away. There's a separation, which is judgment. But also in that same verse, it's thrown into what? 
It's thrown into the fire. That also doesn't sound like fun. This is, in other words, biblical language that refers to judgment. Biblical language that refers to judgment, that judgment is coming. Judgment is quick. Judgment is certain. And it is for sure. So the word fire in the original language is the word puri. And in the Gospel of Luke, this word puri is presented seven times. Seven times in just the Gospel of Luke alone. But six out of the seven times that the word is used in the Gospel of Luke, the context is judgment. The context is judgment. In other words, it is used for judgment 86% of the time in the Gospel of Luke. So judgment is for non-believers. Judgment is for non-believers. Why? They've rejected the gospel of grace in Christ. They've rejected the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. They hate God. They hate God's word. They hate the gospel. They want nothing to do with Jesus. So, therefore, judgment is coming for them. So if you look at verse 16 now, as a result, verse 16 is within the context of judgment. And this is why I hold to a two-baptism position. This is important. John explains that one baptism is with fire, meaning judgment. In other words, judgment is coming. But there's another baptism that's coming. That's of the Holy Spirit. And this type of language is biblical language. This type of language is referring to salvation. Salvation that's coming from the Lord. When the Lord Jesus came, he came to bring salvation. He came to live for us. He came to die for us. He was buried and raised for us. And so in Jesus' first coming, salvation is only through him. Salvation is only through Jesus and through his work. So this language of baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs also in Matthew 11, or Matthew 3, verse 11, which addresses something that happens to the Christian on the inside. It's an inward cleansing. It's a forgiveness of sin or remission of sin. It's a regeneration or a new birth that comes from within. It's a new life from within. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I want to bring your attention to John chapter 1, verse 33. John chapter 1, verse 33. And this is what the Word of God says. I, referring to John the Baptist, I myself did not know him, talking about Jesus. But he, referring to the Lord, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what is John the Baptist saying? John the Baptist saying, I witness the Spirit of the living God come upon Jesus. And because it came upon Jesus, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He knows that. He sees that. And now Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is real, God's people. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or some nebula, nebulous force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. 
The Holy Spirit is a real person. A person is someone that you can have a relationship with. A person can have a relationship with another person. And so we're not talking about an external work. We're talking about an internal work that happens on the inside. An internal work by the Holy Spirit. That's the point. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to earth to live and die for sinners. When Jesus returned to heaven, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, both sent the Holy Spirit to reside and be with his people, to dwell with his people on earth. That's John chapter 14, 26, and John 16, verse 7. So the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter and the Helper, to be with God's people, to dwell with God's people. So what does it mean for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, if you put John 1 together with Luke chapter 3, what you're going to come together with, the result is regeneration. It's the blessing of a new heart. The blessing of being regenerated. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes helpless sinners to be born again, to have a new birth, to be sons and daughters of the living God. If you're a Christian, please hear me out. If you're a Christian, it's because you're born again. You didn't cause yourself to be born again. Spiritually dead people cannot cause themselves to be born again. The Bible's very clear that unless this happens, we will not see God for who he truly is. In other words, regeneration is before faith in Christ. Regeneration precedes faith. See, in America, it's very popular, but highly unbiblical, when we think that if I just have enough faith, if I have enough belief, then I will be born again. I'll have the heart that the Bible talks about. Very popular, unbiblical. The Bible's very clear that we are regenerated first or born again first. We have a new heart and a new life first. And shortly thereafter, what happens is we turn from our sins. That's biblical repentance. We turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ. You cannot turn away from your sins unless you're born again. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ unless you're born again. So, Pastor Rolo, you're saying that God has to do the work. Exactly. That's why our salvation is so great. So then the counter-argument sounds like this. Well, if God doesn't change my heart, I'm not responsible for my sin. No, 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 no. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God will judge every sinner for their sin. That's what a holy God does. Just because you're born, not born again doesn't mean you have the license to sin, so to speak, and not be held accountable by the living God. No, you will be held accountable. So regeneration precedes faith. It's not the other way around. Let me read John chapter 1, verse 12 for us. And this is talking about God the Father causing his people to be born again. Verse 12, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All the pronouns in this verse refer to Jesus. Jesus gave the right 
to become children of God. That's what we're reading. And those who believe in the name of Jesus, meaning they believe in Jesus as Savior, received and received Jesus, were born of God. It's not of the will of man, but of God. God the Father. So it's very clear in the Bible that God the Father causes His people to be born again. But also in John chapter 3, we see God the Holy Spirit causing God's people to be born again or regenerated. If you remember in John chapter 3, this is the classic text for regeneration. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night. He thinks that Jesus is simply a teacher. But then if you look at verse 3, John chapter 3, verse 3, in John chapter 3, verse 5, it's very clear, unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of heaven and they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. They cannot enter, they cannot see unless God changes their heart. They will not see the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Christ unless God changes their heart. They will not see their need of Jesus unless God changes their heart. So how is one born again? In John chapter 3, verse 8, it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in this text changes the heart. There's one thing that we need to remember. When John the Baptist is talking to people, he's not talking to Christians. He's talking to a general crowd. He's talking to tax collectors. He's talking to soldiers, maybe even policemen. He's not saying all these people are condemned. He's not saying all these people are saved. But what John is saying is this. I'm challenging you on your allegiance. Who do you believe in? Because Jesus, or John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you're truly born again, you will have a biblical repentance. You will have a biblical repentance. And those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit, in other words, they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born again by the Holy Spirit, those people will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But those who are baptized with fire are judged. You ever hear some of these crazy modern Christian songs and some of the lyrics go, Lord, send fire upon me. Lord, send fire upon me. Lord, send fire upon They have no idea what they're saying. What they're singing is that God would judge them by sending fire upon them. It's crazy what people are singing today, so-called Christian community. So Jesus is mightier than John the Baptist, and there's two baptisms. Baptized by the Holy Spirit, we're born again. Baptized by fire, that person or those people are judged. Which leads to point number two. Jesus will bring judgment, verse 17. Jesus will bring judgment. Verse 17 says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is another reason why I hold to the two-baptism position. Because in this verse, verse 17 adds to the context that there's judgment that's happening. There's judgment that's coming. 
And the one who is mightier than John has something in his hand. The one that is mightier than John the Baptist has a tool in his hand. This tool is a winnowing fork. A winnowing fork is a piece of wood. It's a wooden instrument that looks like a pitchfork that you get this pile of grain, you scoop it up like a shovel, you throw it up in the air, and the grain goes up in the air. The heavy grain is separated from the light chaff. All it takes is a little, a little bit of wind. And the chaff that's on the grain is separated from the heavy grain. And the chaff goes over here in one pile, and the heavy grain goes straight down into another pile. And then this grain is taken into a granary or a barn for storage. And this light chaff is also put into a pile. And so what's the idea? The idea is sifting. The idea is separation. The idea, the, the idea is identifying what is the chaff and what is the wheat or the grain. That's the idea there. But the chaff, there's something that's going to happen to the chaff. To clear the threshing floor is to get all this light chaff that's unproductive, that's useless, put it in a pile and start it on fire. It's going to be consumed by fire. In other words, the chaff is going to be judged. The chaff are those who are baptized by fire. The chaff are those who don't believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The one who is the true grain and comes into the barn is the one who says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. My allegiance is to him. He's the one who bled and died for me. So what's the idea with the winnowing fork? The idea is this. Judgment is coming. And it will be thorough. It will be severe. And it will be for certain. You can count on that. If you look at verse 17, it uses the language of unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. It means what it means. It means a fire that cannot be put out. In other words, this is a fire that's eternal. It's a fire that is forever. In other words, it's referring to hell. There's a place for sinners who reject the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Hell is eternal. Hell is forever, and it never ends. And you know, as a church in America, many people don't want to talk about hell. I don't understand how we can appreciate the gospel if we don't understand what we've been saved from and saved unto. The historic church, the historic church has a position as it relates to hell in church history. The church holds the position that hell is eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. Eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. Eternal means forever. Conscience means that the person is aware emotionally, mentally, mentally, physically of what they are personally experiencing. They don't die. They don't fall asleep. They don't disappear. They are conscious and awake of what's happening to them. In punishment, we understand that. They are receiving their due. 
for violating God's law and God's will. That's what a holy God does. He punishes those who are wicked and evil. In the 20th century, there has been three lies straight out of the pit of hell that has challenged the church in regards to eternal conscience punishment. And you see that in your bulletin. Three lies that comes straight out of the pit of hell. Number one, universalism. Universalism. I've given you a short definition. Is the position that if not in life, then after death, all people will ultimately embrace salvation. In other words, whether they're alive or dead, whether they have faith in Jesus Christ, all will be saved. But the problem is this position denies faith in Christ. There's no need for a Christ and for the salvation that he provides. The other problem is this. If they're dead, they're saying there's another opportunity for what's called post-mortem evangelism. You can evangelize the dead. Because remember, it's either in life or in death. But all will come and be saved. But I want to remind us of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That doesn't get any clearer, brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus' own words says it. Jesus is very clear that not everyone who calls upon his name will be saved. Not everyone will be in the kingdom of heaven, but is the one who does the will of his Father. In order to do the will of the Father, you've got to know the Father. In order to know the Father, you've got to know Jesus. You can't get to the Father without Jesus. But through Jesus, you get to the Father. And so, sinners need Jesus. It's not a matter of what you think. It's not a matter of what I think. It's not a matter of how we feel. It's not a matter of popular opinion. It's not a matter of what the government says. It's not a matter of what Hollywood says. It's a matter of do we know God through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in Him alone? To place our hope and trust in anything else besides the Lord Jesus Christ is absolute foolishness. For those who do that, will wake up someday in the fire that never ends. That will be a terrible day. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, once appointed to die, once, then the judgment. We don't die multiple times and get multiple opportunities. No, you're, each and every one, every human being on planet Earth has an appointment with God. Whether they like it or not, that's beside the point. They have an appointment with God. And once appointed to die, once, then the judgment. Not everybody is going to be saved. Universalism is a, is a lie. Lie number two, conditional immorality. Conditional immorality is the position that God alone possesses immortality. He is intrinsically immoral. And what they're saying is this. 
Believers, by God's grace, receive eternal life. And if you've received eternal life, then that means you're immortal. You're immortal. But those who do not receive eternal life, what's the opposite of eternal life? They die. They die. They die naturally. Why? Because they're mortal. And because they're mortal, they cease to exist. Somehow, in that position, people just cease to exist. I know your looks say, say it all. But this conditional immortality denies that everyone will be saved. So that's the difference between that and universalism. So universalism, universalism says everybody is saved. Conditional immortality says, guess what? If you, are, you receive God's grace by faith, then you're immortal. You receive eternal life. But if you don't, you just cease to exist. But in Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus says this, And these, referring to unrighteous people, wicked people, and these will go away into eternal punishment. These wicked people will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. They will go into eternal life. There's only two options. The Bible's very clear. There's only two options. There is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. There's only eternal life and eternal punishment. So ceasing to exist is not a biblical option. This is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. Which leads to the third lie, annihilationism. Annihilationism. This is the position that after death, the wicked will be destroyed as punishment for their sin. And what that means is they will be punished for a period of time, a limited period of time, and then they're destroyed. Okay? Well, they get that position from 2 Thessalonians 1.9 when it talks about eternal destruction. So in their mind, eternal destruction is you are destroyed and you're gone. Well, what do we do about Matthew 25.46? We just read it. There's some who will go on who are wicked into eternal punishment, and there are those who will go into eternal life, the righteous. But in Mark 9, it's very clear that Jesus uses the words unquenchable fire not to mean destruction. It's not about destruction or cessation of his existence, but to mean continual smoke. Continual smoke means continual punishment. So we don't cease to exist we're not destroyed. Not all people go to heaven. Not all, all people are saved. The Bible's very clear. Conscious, eternal punishment. They know exactly what they're receiving, and they will receive it forever. So let me ask you this. Why do we talk about this? Because we live in a culture today that only wants to talk about heaven, but they never want to talk about hell. Do you understand, do we understand that Jesus talks more about hell than heaven? Therefore, hell is a real place, and it's important as Bible-believing Christians to understand what we've been saved from. The great grace that we've received from God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we understand that? If we're Christians, it's we're Christians because God gave us Jesus, and we've turned away from our sin, we place our hope, all our hope in him. So the question now becomes, are you a Christian? 
Because if you think you're a Christian based off of your ethnicity, based off of your gender, based off of your family tradition, based off of your church life, you're born in a church, raised in a church, raised in a godly family, has nothing to do with the price of tea in China. I hope you understand that. You have to come to grips with the reality is, are you a Christian? And if you are, how do you know you are? Because you can't say, well, hell doesn't exist. The Bible is very clear that hell exists. And the unrighteous and the wicked will be there. And that is a manifestation, an exhibition of God's justice upon sinners. That God truly is holy. And he's going to send them to hell. Do you embrace the gospel? Do you love Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Or is he your judge? The Lord will sift every person. He will sift humanity. One group is going to be a pile of grain showing that they're true believers in Christ. They will come into the barn. They will come into the granary. But the chaff, the light chaff, it just takes a little spark. And they're doomed for destruction. They will be burned and consumed by fire. They will end up in hell. So which pile are you in? Which person are you? What do you believe in and why? Yet for us, we've received the greatest gift ever for those of us who are in Christ. We are followers of Christ because God has been gracious to you. He's been gracious to me. He didn't treat our sins as they deserve. He didn't judge our sins in the way that they deserve, which is our own life and our own blood. But yet Christ stood in our place and lived and died for us. He deserved well, we deserved judgment, yet he died so that we could live. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. John the Baptist can't do that. Nobody can do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So in Jesus' first coming, he brought salvation through his life and death for those who repent and trust in him. But in Jesus' second coming, Jesus will come again. Jesus is not coming to bring salvation the second time. Jesus is coming to bring judgment. And all those who reject him as Lord and Savior will be judged. I hope we take this seriously, God's people. And if you're a guest, we're grateful to the Lord that you're here with us today. But do you know what you believe and why? Where's your eternal destination? Nobody wants to think about eternity until they're about to die. They think they're going to live forever. You think you're going to live forever. You can die of a heart attack tonight. You could die when somebody runs the red light and T-bones you. You could die a million ways. Don't think you're going to live forever. You need to know what you believe and why. And if you're not a Christian, would you turn to Christ? Would you believe in Him? He's the only Savior that can save you from your sins. Do you think you're here by accident? You're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. Which leads to the third and final point. Number three, consequences for spirit-filled preaching in verses 18 through 20. Read with me. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. 
So as a result, as a consequence, after many pleadings, after many appeals, and preaching the gospel, preaching the message of Jesus Christ. It's interesting in this text that the good news of Jesus Christ requires something. It requires that we address sin. You wonder why I address sin. It's because the Bible calls us to address sin. But part of communicating the good news is proclaiming the bad news, is addressing sin. And in this context, John the Baptist, who's a prophet, they, the people look at John the Baptist as a wild man. He's out in the wilderness telling people to repent. But he, he addresses one of the most powerful men in the land. He addresses Herod. He rebukes Herod for violating the Old Testament law. Well, Herod had two sons. Herod I is known as Herod the Great. He had a son named Antipas. He had another son, Philip. And it's Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, same father, two different mothers. Well, Herod Antipas, he was married, and he decides to divorce his wife. Well, Herod Philip, the half-brother, was married to a woman named Herodias. Herodias somehow, some way, was able to exit herself or separate herself from that marriage with Herod Philip. So, you know, you've got Herod Antipas now in union with his brother's wife. And this is a direct violation of taking a brother's wife, according to Leviticus 18, 16, and 20, 21. So John challenges Herod for all his sins, especially this unbiblical, ungodly, sexual, incestuous relationship. He tells Herod, what you're doing is wrong. You married the wrong woman. You did it the wrong way. Everything that you're doing is evil and wicked. He had no problem challenging the ruler of the land. And as a result, what happens to John the Baptist? They didn't give him a bouquet of flowers and a bunch of roses and said, good job. John the Baptist, they arrested him, apprehended him, put him in jail, locked him up. So here are some thoughts that we should consider regarding these verses. We must continue as God's people to bless his church with men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We need men to stand up for truth. We need men to not run away from the public square, but to run into the public square with the truth of God's word and say, thus saith the Lord, and make no apologies for it. Sometimes the church is too quiet. To be meek is to be considered weak by the world. But to be meek and humble doesn't mean we have to be silent. The church needs to be the church. We must continue to have God-filled men, Holy Spirit-filled men, to preach the truth. We must continue to have the Word of God faithfully preached in this pulpit at whatever the cost may be. If you're watching the news and listening to the news, there are many people in America who want the Christian voice to be silenced. We cannot do that. We must say Jesus is our Lord and Savior. 
We must say that the Bible is the word of God. We must say that repent and believe unto Jesus Christ and be saved. There are all sorts of conversations that are happening all across the country at every level on how can we silence Christians. We cannot be silent, God's people. We must continue to preach the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. We must continue to preach against sin. All sin. We cannot just preach against heterosexual sin at the cost of homosexual sin and vice versa. We must preach against all sin. We must preach against evil leaders. We must preach the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ for the glory of his name. If the Lord gives us people in authority, we do not worship them. They are not the Savior. They are not the Christ. They're not the Messiah. They have a responsibility to rule the land in righteousness, not according to their whims and their emotions. And when they violate God's word, God's people need to stand up and say, this is evil. We must continue to preach God's word, no matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who's in authority. When they violate God's word, we must speak. I want to close by saying this. C.H. Spurgeon was asked about ministry and what should be the focus of ministry. And he says this, the legacy of ministry to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is this, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the arm and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth. What's the purpose of your life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is the purpose of your life? That you would glorify God. You would enjoy God forever. That you would know the gospel of grace and tell others about him. Do you know the purpose of your life individually and corporately as a church? Don't we want to know Christ and to make him known? I hope that's not a cute Christian cliche that we say on a Sunday morning and put no feet to it. We need to put feet to that. Why? Why do we want to know Jesus and to make him known? Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is mightier. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who lived and died and was raised again. Jesus is the one who's ascended upon high, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the one who makes intercession for the saints. Jesus is the one why you're saved. If you don't have Jesus, if we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. Jesus is the greater baptizer. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. We've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we praise God. Sermon in a sentence. Judgment day is coming, and it will be terrible for those who are outside of Christ. But we have the good news of salvation in Jesus. Therefore, let's tell others about him. If we believe what the Word of God says, we will figure out ways to share the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ 
with those who are all around us. We won't be passive. We won't be lazy. We won't try to figure a way out of it, but we will be proactive in sharing that gospel, the good news of Christ with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us. We thank you, O Lord.